Sometimes punishments just can't make up for the crime. Welcome, Immortalites, to another round of the Mere Mortals book reviews. You do indeed have Chiron here today on the 4th of January 2024, welcoming in the new year with another book review live. I do have my co-host Juan in the chat and Johnny, so shout outs to them. And if you would like to join me here for a live book review, I always go live 10 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time on a Thursday, which is UTC midnight, wherever you are in the world on a Wednesday, just plus or minus your time zone from that, and you'll be able to join us. So this is the book reviews channel for those who more are looking into perhaps some older classic books. We dive deeper into them. We try and get the juicy information, some themes, things you might not have realized, thought about, bring it all up to the surface, and we just talk books here. It's really, really fun. So what is today's book? Well, it's a little bit deep. It's a little bit dark, a little bit depressing, and I honestly was a little bit disappointed in it, but we'll get onto that soon. It is Darkness at Noon by Arthur Gwessler. Gwessler. Um, Difficult name to pronounce even in the German, Kohestler, something like that. So this book was published in 1940 and is about 210 pages in length, so it was pretty reasonably quick to get through. Pages aren't super big or dense either. I'd say it was about four hours worth of reading for myself. What was my motivation, initial impression coming into this particular book? Well, I've never actually heard of uh, Arthur Kuesler before, and uh, I'm not really sure why. The The psychology of communism and its detril- detrimental effects certainly do fascinate me. Um, and I'm, I don't know. The the book itself, after reading it, I, I probably can say, all right, I think I do know why this didn't capture me as, as much as I, I thought it would. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it's in a horrifying way. I probably should have come across this earlier, considering how much um, I, I am intrigued by these aspects of communism, the Soviet style of these, the show trials and all these sorts of things. So this book in particular starts off with this main character, Rubashov. And he's been thrown into a, a jail cell and it's kind of like, oh, you know, what's what's going on here? What's he what's he done wrong? And uh, he then has like this little flashback to before he was thrown into the cell and then he's back in the cell again. And then there's another flashback and then it, it's like this alternating back and forth really quickly. At least in the first 30 pages, I would say 40, 50 pages, you just go through this back and forth. It's a it's a bit of a strange style. Um Ultimately, I didn't find it that helpful to the story, uh, and uh, I'll talk more about this a little bit later, why, why I think this was actually somewhat detrimental to it. So let's jump onto the, the plot and style, and it's somewhat of a conglomeration of experiences of the Moscow show trials. So if you don't know about those, those were basically in the you know, Soviet-style era, um, and I'm thinking back to... I'm going to say around like the 1940s um, in particular, maybe even a little bit before that or after that. This was when they were purging all of these people who were kind of in the revolution with Stalin. And he was basically just getting rid of people who were uh, powerful so that he could maintain his own power. And what we see with this in this book is it's a very similar setting, except it's not, it's just an unnamed dictatorship. And there's an unnamed person at the top called number one and we never really get to experience more here about him and Rubashov, this character was essentially in the high levels of that he was the one you know taking photos with uh with number one and similar as to you'll see in the photo on your screen 
he's the type of person who would get disappeared because uh, his his policies. He was a bit too powerful. People knew him a bit too much, and so the you know it was kind of like we need to we need to get rid of this guy. So basically, he gets put in in prison, and um, he reflects upon his past somewhat fondly, but also guiltily, uh, in, at the same time about things that were going on, how he behaved, and and what he could have done better, what he should have done thinking about his present situation how he can somewhat talk his way out of this fix that he's gotten into because he has been in prison before and it's told all through the eyes of a narrator really just focused on rubashov so everything we see is through what's going on through his mind his actions it might slightly deviate to some other characters for a page or two but it's really quickly back onto him uh it's mostly him reflecting i suppose there is some dialogue with other other characters which we'll see soon with uh, tapping on the walls through through to other prisoners and we do have these rather large back and forth between his the officers of the prison who are trying to get a confession out of him these being ivanov and gletkin so uh it's kind of muted descriptions everything in this book if i was to imagine it in my mind's eye was very gray much like you'd kind of expect from the the soviet style architecture from everything back in those times was gray i'm fully convinced color did not exist in the in the soviet era uh and the the political language the dance of language is is very uh, you'll you'll see it soon where it's just it's it's about posturing it's about politics it's not about truth it's not about objectivity it's all about how is this going to help me or help this situation so We've got Cole here, and he's going to give us an example of the kind of considerations, things that go on in their minds from page 27 when he is thrown into his cell for the first time. The corridor was empty. The electric lamps spread their stale, faded light. One did not hear the slightest sound. Why had number 402 become dumb? Probably from fear. He was afraid of compromising himself through Rubashov. Perhaps number 402 was an unpolitical doctor or engineer who trembled at the thought of his dangerous neighbor. Certainly without political experience, Elsie would not have asked for the name as a start. Presumably mixed up in some affair of sabotage. Has obviously been in prison quite a time already. Has perfected his tapping and is devoured by the wish to prove his innocence. Still in the simple belief that his subjective guilt or innocence makes a difference. And with no idea of the higher interests which are really at stake. Oof. Yeah, so this is a scene where basically Rubashov is in the cell and he's meeting his uh, roommate, number 402, for the first time, and they're doing this tapping. And they've established this system, and as he said, you know, he's really good at it. So they can communicate only through the sound noises of, of you know, rather than actual speaking, which obviously requires a lot of time and it's not going to be full long descriptions and back and forth, but, you know, maybe there is when you've got 18 hours of your day to just tap back and forth to each other. And what's interesting here is the that that sentence right near the end where it's, you know, it's not about a subjective guilt or innocence that that makes a difference. And I think you could even replace subjective with objective because it did not matter to this system and to the people within it whether things were subjectively or objectively true or not true. It was about the political considerations. It's, you know, <laughs> it's a it's so disturbing and paradoxical, and it's paradoxical in this really uh, nasty kind of way. It's 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 that sense where it's just like, oh my god, like what? How could you, how could anything um, 
work in the system if if truth doesn't matter and it's all just about what's in your head you know it's 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 very strange very weird but that does give you a, a taste into to where we go right at the start here so i'm going to go on to my you know, themes and questions here and and geez where do you start with this it is it is disturbing um and exasperating and so i've got a little formula for you here and so, see if you can figure it out which i'll um reveal the the ending of it soon or the um the the final equation so if you have blind rationality and then you add political hubris and then you add dumb brutality what do you get so mull over that for a second the whole philosophy and the people within this book reek of this formula it just comes out of it and we see this embodied in the i'd say i suppose three main characters of this book this being rubashov ivanov and gletkin so the prisoner himself and then the two people somewhat Tort- not torturing him, although it kind of gets to that, uh, but trying to get a confession out of him. And so Rubashov, he's this blind rationality. He's the thinker of the party. And so he is strict. He is using his brain IQ 50,000 to think of his way of thinking of actions and, and seeing, okay, you know, this is, I'm doing this and this is following the party line for this reason. And so therefore this must happen. And uh, you know considerations of people's feelings of how this will affect the world it's kind of irrelevant and we have this scene here in the book where he's he's in a cell and he sees this old guy who was a navy general or, or very high up as well being dragged out of his cell basically like slump and head bleeding a, sh- a shallow hollow of a man that he used to be about to get uh, physically liquidated which was their word for extermination or killing or murder but no, they use pre- preferred physical liquidation because it's kind of a little bit impersonal. And when he sees this for the first time and hears this guy moan out his name, he's kind of like, for the first time ever, like, oh my God, people are actually dying. Oh my God, this is so horrible. I never knew it was, <laughs> you know, it's just absolutely blind to, a, to an absolute fault where it's just disgusting. If you haven't got it yet, I, I quite dislike this character of Rubishov. Getting on to the political hubris, this is very much Ivanov, where he is this character who's really great at these wheelings and dealings. And, and you know, you've got to think of the political considerations. What is going to happen from this? It doesn't really matter if this happens or that happens, but you need to say this and do this. And he's basically, he's kind of like also IQ 50,000, maybe slightly less, IQ 40,000, uh, but trying to think ahead and make steps in this direction or that direction and ultimately he gets it wrong because he himself disappears and then we finally have gletkin which is the uh this dumb brute brutality he's the one who's so, sort of the torturer in this whole thing where he, he's described as uh, actually not that smart because he, he learned to read and write when he was almost uh, later years in his life and so this is where we get into this section where you see like okay what's this combination of these three things that are happening if you put all this together you know there are (laughs) it's weird because you you look at these people and you'd say oh man some of them kind of appear like sociopaths like gletkin for example he has no qualms no remorse about torturing people um rubishov and ivanov ivanov kind of and this is where you probably go that they're probably not all absolute psychopaths they're probably not all people who take pleasure in hurting other people and so how did they get into this weird system where they are um kind of good at just sacrificing people 
uh, Richard, as we heard right at the start in that first quote, he's he's kind of just like, yeah, <laughs> we'll get rid of him. Like it doesn't really matter. Um, now, little Lowy, Arlova, um, they're they're all uh, sorry. Richard, that Richard quote comes a little bit later, but in in, in essence, these uh, these characters just get thrown aside and without any remorse. And um, it with the political ability, it's easy to put the blame elsewhere, and it doesn't really matter. And um, to answer that formula, you know, what do you get? Blind rationality, political hubris, and dumb brutality. You get the greater good. And so we have this quote here, which uh, I think explains basically what is happening. And this is the, the quote of uh, Richard. Rubishov waited to see whether he still had anything to say, but Richard said nothing. Dusk was falling rapidly now. Rubishov took his pince-nez off and rubbed it on his sleeve. The party can never be mistaken, said Rubishov. You and I can make a mistake, not the party. The party, comrade, is more than you and I and a thousand others like you and I. The party is the embodiment of the revolutionary idea in history. History knows no scruples and no hesitation. Inert and unnerving, she flows towards her goal. At every bend in her course, she leaves the mud which she carries and the corpses of the drowned. History knows her way. She makes no mistakes. He who has not absolute faith in history does not belong in the party's ranks. Yeah. Oof. So it's for the greater good, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's all about this faith and call to the higher power of the party. And this, this all rests on we're doing good. This is for the plebeians. We're doing this for the people. This is what the revolution's all about. Uh, and, and there can be no erring. There can be no mm, stopping of um, the, the progress that is going forward. And so any minor mishaps, any person who does something bad or uh, even just events, like if a tornado comes through or if, you know, just due to bad weather, they're not able to produce enough crops, someone's got to pay for it. There's got to be a, a reason for this. And, you know, it's uh, if, if bad things happen to people, it's all for this greater purpose, this higher purpose. Um, and this is where you can just start to use some rationality and go, well, like if humans are and we know this, and he talks about this here in that quote, you know, it, you can be mistaken, but the party can never be mistaken. What, where, where does that grounding come from? Because is there something about systems that just naturally make them uh, unavailable, uh, you know, impossible for them to err, to make mistakes? What, what's the rationale, the grounding behind that? And there is none. There, there, it's just, this is the way things are done. This is where it's kind of getting into the power. And it's like, well, are you... <laughs> You really want to question the revolution, comrade? Um, okay, yeah, you know, here's a here's a twenty year jail sentence for you. So this is what actually scares me a lot because I have way less faith in a group than I do in individual beings. Because an individual human, sure, they can cause a lot of havoc, they can kill people, they can do bad things, but they can't kill millions of people. They can't kill tens of millions. They can't kill hundreds of millions of people. But this is what a system like the one described in this book can do, where just people wholesale are getting physically liquidated or put into these prisms. And um, the longest prolonged suffering, I think this is the worst bit of it, the longest prolonged suffering is instigated by those who are motivated by good uh, yet are doing evil. And so because there's kind of staying power, if you think you're doing good, you're willing to put up with privations, you're willing to work super hard. We see Rubishov in this book, he works really hard. He grinds himself to the bone. 
uh, working and giving his all to the party. And yet he's doing immense harm, immense, immense harm. And yet he continues to do it because he thinks he's doing good. Uh, and what we see eventually is that this is unsustainable and that people like Gletkin, who is this kind of dumb brute officer, and we'll see in the next quote, the, he, he's the result of all of this. He is, he is the kind of final product. So that's the main things I've got from this, which is just, you know, this, I, I'm not even going to label it communism per se, although this is what the book was somewhat mm, modeled on, at, at least that the author said that himself in the preface and the Soviet trials. But it, this could occur in any kind of political system for sure. And just system where humans get together and who knows, even in the future, robots perhaps could get into the same sort of bind where the it's it's just immense harm is being done and yet people think it's doing good and they're able to justify it. They're able to be, you know, covers over their, their eyes. They're able to think their ways out of it or if they're uh, able to just put people who are brutes and unthinking and uncaring into position, positions of power. All of that just is scary and horrifying for sure. So let's jump, I suppose, onto the author himself, some extra details. Uh, he was Hungarian born and had a pretty varied life, to be honest. He grew up mostly in Europe, I think in Austria, um, and was himself a communist for a fair while. Gall- gallivanted about is what I would say, uh, just judging from the, the brief bio I read of him during the events of the 1930s, 40s. So he was in Paris when uh, bad stuff was happening with the with the Nazis and they were you know starting to look to invade. And I think he ended up going to... Um, getting shipped off to like Africa and then deserting and then was back in England and was jailed in England. They got released. Like he, he had a pretty varied life for sure. Um, and as I think Juan said in the uh, discord somewhere, the book itself was in the possession of someone else. And I believe it was lost, but then refound or something like that. So it had a bit of a history and, and he had a, uh, a history himself. This book in particular, Darkness at Noon was his most noted work. So. If you're um, new to him like I am, this was, uh, is, uh, I suppose, the best place to start if most people talk about this. And the extra detail that I really wanted to get into was, you know, what's the root cause of all this misery and suffering? So we kind of saw the formula of, of what would end up to be the worst thing that you could possibly imagine, which is things being done for the greater good. It's for this purpose in the future, you know. Um, uh, to take a modern example, if you look at someone like Sam Bankman-Free, this effective altruist, I'm going to you know, earn all this money, I'm going to do it in kind of underhanded ways, but it's all for the greater good because I'm going to give it all away at the end of my life. And that kind of reasoning you can see is pretty easily like, ah, that, that's, that, no, no, you can't do that. You can't cause misery and suffering now because you're going to uh, make things better in the future because that's an eventuality. That's not reality. That's just a thing that might happen. And in most cases, we see it doesn't happen. So, what is the root of all this misery, suffering, wrongdoings? I think it's something like the refusal to tra- treat people as individuals. Throughout this whole book, everyone is a comrade. They're a citizen. They're a number four hundred two or number four hundred six in the in the jail cells. And there is no appeal to them as an individual. And we see this in, in some of the quotes themselves. So here we have Cole again on page 183, uh, reading out this section. Apparently, he had reached a state which precluded any deeper emotion. Anyhow, 
Even before he had learned of Ivanov's death, he had been ashamed of that idle feeling of triumph. Glekin's personality had gained such power over him that even his triumphs were turned into defeats. Massive and expressionless, he sat there, the brutal embodiment of the state which owed its very existence to the Rubashovs and the Ivanovs, flesh of their flesh, grown independent and become insensible. Had not Glekin acknowledged himself to be the spiritual heir of Ivanov and the old intelligentsia? Rubashov repeated to himself for the hundredth time that Glekin and the new Neanderthalers were merely completing the work of the generation of the numbered heads. That the same doctrine became so inhumane in their mouths had, as it were, merely climatic reasons. When Ivanov had used the same arguments, there was yet an undertone in his voice left by the past by the remembrance of a world which had vanished. One can deny one's childhood, but not erase it. Ivanov had trailed his past after him to the end. That was what gave everything he said that undertone of frivolous melancholy. That was why Glekin had called him a cynic. The Glekins had nothing to erase. They need not deny their past because they had none. They were born without umbilical cord, without frivolity, without melancholy. Yes. So we see with this quote here, which was, Basically, getting close towards the end of his torture, and basically the torture was like bright lights being put at him, somewhat actually, like what's going on <laughs> in the studio in the moment. And he's got these bright lights in his eyes. He's not allowed to sleep at all. So he's not, it's not like a physical torturing and like beatings or anything like that, but it's certainly a more psychological slash physiological torture, maybe something like that. And we see with this, you know, Gletkin he's he's kind of this the result of the the party and and the result of all of this he is an uncaring um you know unmovable force of nature he is just there to do his job to get the results to serve the party and he's not capable of these higher thoughts like ivanov and or uh, like rubashov and he is definitely one who does not treat people as individuals. He doesn't care. Um, we get a slight, slight taste of it, like a little bit of, of um, sympathy right at the end of the book. But f- for the most part, no, it's just as uncaring, uh, bar- barbaric ways you would see. Uh, and it's really funny seeing that the Rubashov and Ivanov are somewhat dis- dispirited by him being the, the, the successor almost of everything they were trying to do. Um, because there's no sentimentality or melancholy in him. And he somewhat detests the masses when, when he talks about them because he's one of them and he, he looks at them and he's like, these stupid peasants, you know, when they're in the factories, they used to just sleep on the floor because that's what they used to do because they had no watches. The, you know, I got a watch when I was in my 20s. You, you were born with one. You, you had one when you were a child. So he had no conception of time. And he, he's basically... Uh, you know, they're doing everything for the masses, but the masses are this vague, mm, ephemeral idea, and none of them are an individual person. Like, we're going to try and help this person. Or we're going to try and help this person in particular. It's like, no, we're going to try and help all of you. And if you try and help everyone like that, you can't do anything. And so, <laughs> I don't know. When I look at this, it just it just scares me in, in the sense that uh, probably the antidote to this sort of thing is to treat everyone as more as individuals. And I, I, I'd like to try and embody that in my own life. And, and I, I really hate this, you know, they, the, the, especially if you're talking about people in power. And I think this can go the same way 
if you're a somewhat conspiracy minded or uh, rightly or wrongly, if you if you start talking about they as in the government, the government is just made up of people and they're individual people at, at that. And so there's something I I battle with myself and uh, in, in terms of shifting of individual responsibility as well. This is a, a good argument, I think, for, for veganism or vegetarianism of. No, you're not doing any of the actual killing of the animals. If you were doing that yourself, would you still eat meat? And I think that's a pretty valid question to ask. Um, there's counter arguments to that and you can have big debates and all that sort of thing. But this is just one of those things where I go, hmm, yeah, maybe in my own life, I'm, I'm kind of shirking some responsibilities and I would rather not do that. So I, I think that ends up in situations like we see in this book. So let's get the final summary, similar books, recommendations. The ending of this book is noteworthy for how shallow it is. <laughs> it's basically a morally bankrupt man in Rubashov deciding to finally muse of what could have been. So in particular, he's basically capitulated. He's, he's confessed to everything. He's uh, going to start doing these like show trials himself and he's not going to cause a ruckus or a scene. He's just kind of accepted his fate. Uh, and he's in a cell and he finally gets a little bit of sleep and then he starts thinking about this, you know, what could have been? He could have been a, an astronomer if he hadn't fallen into the party. And, um, you know, because he had this curiosity as a child and this oceanic feeling, which I don't know where the hell that came from, but he starts talking about that. And all I can think is, who cares what this dude has to say? Um, the, he's, there can be no repentance, re, uh, repentance for, for what he's done. Because he created this monster of a machine, this beast. He willfully looked away when he had individual opportunities multiple times three in the book being these characters who he somewhat sacrificed for the for the party for the revolution um when he could have saved them just with a a word of his voice he could have saved them but he chose not to because he wanted to survive because he needed to be there for the party in the future because he was important and because he was doing the most good and uh so I just looked at, yeah, every opportunity for individual courage he misses. And it scares me. It scares me because he's not a psychopath. He's not a person who you can really look at and go, he's a bad person. You can say that, I think, after looking at his life and you're like, okay, he did a lot of bad things. Not necessarily like physically himself, but what he helped to create and what he avoided looking at was, was really bad. And yet here he is right at the end of his life being like, la-di-da, like, oh, if only things could have been slightly different, I could have been an astronomer. And it's just like, shut up, man. Who gives a fuck? Who gives what you think? Um, but, you know, maybe it scares me because it could be me um, because I, I certainly see like portions of myself in him. Um, he's, not, he's not unrelatable, but I definitely just go, man, he's a dude who made all the wrong decisions. Um, and nothing can make up for it no matter how much he is punished nothing can make up for the millions of lives that he himself has ruined through through his actions and so um yeah <laughs> it leaves a sour taste in the end the, the ending where it's just like him reflecting and who cares who cares what this dude thinks uh, other than that the book I, I found was merely okay i didn't really connect with anyone like i said i, I prefer when i can connect with a character and I didn't hate Rubashov, but I, I certainly, there was many instances where I'm just like, this dude, ah, gets, gets me annoyed for sure. Um, the, the topics were somewhat interesting. I do like this aspect of diving into the paradox of, of how they're able to 
use politics and justify doing really bad things. But just the way the book presented it, I, it didn't capture me as much as I as I thought it probably would. So, um, and and like I said, he had all these backtrackings in the point. If it had just been him in the cell without these flashbacks, I, th- I think I probably would have enjoyed it more. But that was just me myself. So overall, I'm giving the book a five and a half out of ten. Darkness at Noon by Arthur Quessler. I, I can't. I can't really say like you have to go out and read it or anything like that. If I had to say similar books recommendations, it's hard to go past things which are really good, like 1984 by George Orwell, my favorite book of all time. Uh, the Gulag Archipelago. Um, I've only read the abridged version of that, but even that was like knock your socks off in terms of the the stories. And and that one is a um, a nonfiction book of uh, by <laughs> I'm not sure I want to say his name. So I was in this <laughs> um, uh, A couple of other things, maybe even stylistic elements of this, like Franz Kafka's The Trial, seep into it a little bit because it is this back and forth, political wheeling, dealings, paradox, things don't really make sense. So a couple of little things there to, um, to get you interested. I'm going to jump onto my Boostergram Lounge section. So this is where I thank some people for helping to support the show. And we did get a boostergram in this week, which is really encouraging. I love seeing that. So this one was from who else but Guitar the Slav. He said the movie adaptation of this book was pretty good. Daniel Day Lois Foam Finger number one for the win. I didn't say for the win, but I added that. 2222 sats. That is a row of ducks sent using fountain. And yeah, so that's a message sent directly via a podcasting app in support of this show and thanking me and Cole and everyone who was in the splits uh to to create this so much appreciated peter thank you first of all and yeah first of all daniel day lewis amazing actor uh everything that i've seen him in um he, he's just knocked my socks off and maybe that's because he's only apparently he's renowned as doing only a couple of films and but really choosing them um, for that so yeah i um I might need to watch that movie at some point. And so that was for the Last of the Mohicans book review from last week. So thank you very much for that. Uh, that was the only boostgram that we've got in. Once again, I do enjoy comments, um, particularly in this form. So if you go to meremodelspodcast.com slash support, you'll be able to see the different apps and the ways that we're doing it. There's a little QR code on your screen at the moment. Uh, I think someone's already claimed this. So maybe for the next one, I'll, I'll put it up again where you have the ability to just scan that or type in the link if you're in the um in the podcasting apps themselves and you can get a, a 2000 satoshis and the little onboarding experience onto the lightning network and bitcoin i get it it's all super difficult it's all new uh, and makes no sense but if you go to meremodelspodcast.com slash support once again well i've got a bit of an explanation there of, of um everything that is going on so Finally, the value for value podcast. So this is what this podcast is, the model. You will never hear ads. You will never hear sponsorships. I am not getting paid by any of these authors to do these books. I book reviews. I follow my passions. I follow my interests, my intrigues. I follow recommendations that you give at home to me for great books to read and to review. So this is as unbiased as I can make them these book reviews, um, but it does require money to create this and time and energy. And so I just ask that for all this value that I'm putting up upfront, you never have to support, you never have to contact me in any way. 
I certainly would like if you could give me some back. And there's many different ways you can do this. Sharing the podcast, if you're on YouTube, you know, hitting the like, the subscribe, the bell notification, all those things to know when I go live and letting a friend know, hey, there's this really cool podcast channel about book reviews. They've read, he did one on this book you might enjoy, or you might enjoy it if you do this. You've got some exams studying, uh, coming up. What are some of the themes of this book you might enjoy? I can do all that for you, you know? <laughs> so that is one way you can do it. You can give me some talent. This is giving me book recommendations. I would love to know what you think of these books or uh, parts that I may have missed of ideas, themes, questions, which I glossed over of stylistic elements that I might've missed. I would love to know all of your thoughts and opinions on these. Once again, you can do that via social media, or you could do that via Boostergram, which you can do within the podcasting app. It just makes sense. I put a ton of effort into the chapters, to the transcripts, into mostly going live on this. I wasn't able to this week because uh, technical issues. <laughs> so uh, all of those sorts of things, I, I, I very much uh, appreciate if you could do any of them. This podcast just relies on your support and feedback. So uh, if I don't get any, it, it will eventually go away. But when we have people like Peter um, donating in and obviously... Uh, people like Cole, who's providing you know immense value with his voice acting chops and reading out these quotes, uh, it's it's super super fun, enjoyable, and I do hope to start to in- incorporate a little bit of music into this as well in the future. So we're going to leave it there for today. Thank you everyone for joining in. What is next week's book review going to be? Uh, it's one you might not expect from me because it's it's somewhat political and it's uh, manufacturing consent by noam chomsky and i've actually forgotten the other author's name i should probably check that up <clears throat> right now so manufacturing consent by noam chomsky and edward s herman so yeah that's a it's a bit of a thick book so uh, cole if you're listening the uh the quotes might come a little bit late later than usual uh, apologies but I'll, I'll try and do that um in, in any case, and that is all about how the mass media is, is essentially a propaganda machine. I, I very much subscribe to that view myself. And uh, he's got a lot of examples in the book. They have a lot of examples of uh, how they do this. And what's really interesting, it's, it's from 1984, I believe, the book. So all of the examples are of you know, things which are kind of done in the past, talking about uh, the Sandinistas. Uh, about the Contras in Nicaragua and El Salvador and uh, Guatemala and places like that. So it's really, it's kind of interesting in, in terms of like being a historical context as well. So that's what's coming up for next week. Thank you everyone for joining in. Please join me for a live book review on Thursday mornings, Australian Eastern Standard Time at 10 a.m. Ciao for now. Karen out.